Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are looking at whether the Australian economy has gone from a recession to a boom. Plenty of economic indicators out there to look at, but more importantly, that actual factual information that every person on the street can see firsthand to help them make a decision. Plenty to cover in this. I know you're going to enjoy the show. See you in there. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurentiu. Thank you for having me on the show, Mr. B. Looking awfully dapper today. And to get your expertise as an economist by a trade, the question I'd like to ask you today, we're almost a year and a half post-COVID or when it was really bad. Has Australia's economy gone from a recession to a boom? It's a big word. Look, it is. And if you had to sort of be on the spot, is it A or B? I'd probably say A. I do think we are um, out of recession and B into boom, no question about it. How sustainable that might be, how broad-based that is, I guess we'll cover in the content of this, but there's no question about it, mate. She's on fire, she's revving hard, and she's going well. And you're either on that train and taking advantage of it, seeing your asset prices go up, whether it's shares or property, or you're on the sidelines going, oh, this is false and the backside's gonna fall out of it anytime soon. And that's a horrible feeling to have that, that, that sort of element of FOMO, fear of missing out. Got an American speaker, I've just seen some marketing for him, I've spoken alongside him, so I'll leave his name out. But you know, it's the prophet of doom, the world's about to end, make sure your retirement isn't blown away. This is a guy that's been on the sidelines for the last 12 years waiting for the market to crack and crash. Here we are at over 30,000. Last time I spoke alongside him, he said it was going to be 6,000. <laughs> and uh, you know, so you've got to be very careful that you don't miss out on the opportunity by you know, being way, way too cautious and not seeing what's in front of you. And it is a very, very real roadblock for people there because some people are very easily influenced by you know, that negative headline. We've got to stop market at an all-time high. Does that mean it's going to cave in? No, it's been setting all-time high since 1870 and continues to do so. It's, a, it's an interesting topic. And I guess that whole notion of, of what it's like today, we really need to get some context before we go into that, AB. Mm. So as the true economist that you are, mm. you'll have these definitions loaded up in your brain. What is a recession and what is a boom? How do we decipher? Okay, so you can use a technical definition. And a recession is where you have two quarters of basically falling economic growth. That's the technical guideline. I think in the real world that we live in, the better measure for a boom or recession is that level of optimism, particularly amongst consumers actually, uh, because so much of the economy is really driven by consumer activity. So if people are fairly uh, downcast about where the economy is and where they see it going and they're not sure um, you know, of job security, for example, they tend to slow down their spending and, and, and sort of batten the hatches down a little bit. And almost, almost like a sentiment type thing. Very much so. And I think to, to all intents and purposes, it's almost a better gauge than having two quarters of economic contraction. Um, that, to the strict letter of the law, is how you define uh, a recession. A boom would be the reverse of that, where you, well, yeah, it's subjective as to what you call a boom versus economic growth, I suppose. But when you've got extremely strong, um, out-of-the-bands type growth in the economy, so let's say you're used to growing at 2 2.5% a year and you have a quarter where year-on-year growth four, that's a major, major shift. Uh, and, and even though these percentage moves seem quite small, you've got to remember it's on a juggernaut, it's on a whole economy. So that's why it's such a marked thing to look at. But you know, for uh, anybody watching this and listening to this broadcast at home, that common sense, um, how do you feel about the economy? How does a consumer feel? Is probably a far better benchmark, I think, and easier to get your head around than looking just at the economic numbers because you know the economic numbers can be misleading. And we can chat about those both now, AB, because what we've seen and the the RBA, sorry, excuse me, the RBA did release a report, I believe, a couple of months ago, saying that consumer confidence was at a seven-year high. Mm. We've also seen consumer spending increase, the property market rage, amongst other things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and it's mm. crazy. So. How would you define the times we're in now and why? 
We're off to the races, there's no question about it. And um, there's a perfect storm if you look at things. You know, we went through you know, an economic shock of, of, of the biggest magnitude really ever seen. It's certainly, I think, bigger and quicker than what we saw in the GFC. And this time around, I think, you know, if we look at the federal government in Australia, yeah, I think Treasury, Josh Frydenberg, these guys did a very, very good job very early on at resuscitating the corpse that was lying on the table, uh, <laughs> literally, because the economy, to all intents and purposes, February, March last year, stopped. People that wanted to go to work couldn't work because of lockdowns. Um, people um, were very, very unsure as to the future and uncertainty is one of those things that can drive people to sit on their wallet rather than spend with it, which slows things down even more. So the government got out very early on and, 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 and threw a colossal amount of money at this. And look, retrospectively looking back, you could argue things like JobKeeper and JobSeeker, particularly JobKeeper, was it the right policy? It was the right policy that was made at that point in time been revised a couple of times and subsequently retired. Um, but when you're making decisions real time, um, you're under enormous pressure to do something and to do something quickly. You can't say, well, let's have a, a working party for the next two months to work out what was too late. So, you know, federal government got onto it pretty quickly with some um, very, very strong economic resource, which worked very, very well. And it gave people breathing space. Um, also, in, in the case of where we are in the cycle this time around, unlike the GFC, where interest rates were you know, in the you know, 4 or 5 6% type level, at 0.1%, interest rates are already incredibly low. So that ability to borrow money um, at almost, there's no cost of borrowing money, really. If you take out inflation, effectively, there is zero cost of borrowing money. It's pretty crazy. Much. So here's free money to borrow, to all intent. You're going to have to pay it back. It's not free-free, but nonetheless, your cost of borrowing it is next to nothing. So you've got great government stimulus and also the ability to effectively borrow at almost zero cost. And I think the one thing that was critically important in this equation too is that you know, it's easy to bag the banks and we've had our fair share of doing that. I've also been quite complimentary about some of the more recent moves. <laughs> but the, the banking sector in Australia didn't shut up shop and stop lending and, and, and batten down the hatches. For, for one of the rare occasions that you're going to see economically, both the private sector through banking and the government uh, were working really hand in glove to make sure that the money flow within business and within, uh, within the economy continued to flow. So you put all that lot together, virtually zero interest rates, uh, a banking sector that's not shut up shop and continues to lend, plus massive government stimulus. Vast sums of money were poured into our economy and kept it turning over, in fact, then started to add fuel to the fire and now she's raging. So hence why things like JobKeeper have really been backed away. And that's why I think more importantly, we've also seen the property market rage as we have too. We're seeing record prices mm. and then predicted 30% growth in the next three years. Look, it, it, it's, it's insane when you look at that and it's not sustainable, but nonetheless, it's where it's at right now. And again, part of the, the, the reason why property has run so hard, where else do you put your money? You're getting virtually zero return on cash or bonds for that matter. And so you know, if you are cashed up or you're happy to take on debt, particularly given how low levels are, there's an insatiable demand uh, to buy more real assets that are starting to you know, inflate and, and move along at a reasonable clip. Now, of course, some of the government stimulus has been in the property sector as well. You've seen variations to things like first-time buyers to make it easier for first-time buyers to get into the marketplace. Uh, the latest budget uh, provided people that have gone through a separation so that women uh, are able to borrow with a higher um, debt load, if you will. You shouldn't say debt load because apparently it's to help people, but that higher loan-to-value ratio where much, much smaller deposits required and, and the balance of that deposit is backed up by the government. Um, so there have been specific um, economic policies that have been designed to... 
um, continue to keep people coming into the market. Also, um, you know, with government policy in regards to renovations and the allowances have been allowed there. Um, and, and part of the reason why property, Mitch, is such an important part of the economy, yeah, it's the biggest employer in Australia. But if, we, if I put on my economics hat on for a moment, one of the theories that we talk about in uh, economics is something called the multiplier effect. And that is, if the government puts in $1 of stimulation, how does that stimulation then get grown? And where can you most effectively spend that dollar? And construction is actually one of the strongest places from a multiplier effect. So for every dollar that the government puts into assisting construction, there's a large workforce in there that are now earning money, which will then spend, just to give you an idea, you know, they'll go down to the local shop and there's a, a newspaper, a coffee and some flavored milk every day for each person there. Uh, there's a purchase of new tools, uh, new vehicles, um, hiring more staff to cope with things. Um, then there's in the supply side, timber, steel fabrication, glazing, painting, um, you know, roof contractors, groundwork, tarmac laying, the, the list goes so it, on. It's so spread across exactly multiple right. places, right? So a dollar goes in, and then the multiplier effect on the other side is, is really quite substantial. Now, I can't quantify. Um, exactly what that output is, but when you look at um, you know, a lot of the research that's put out by you know the major global institutions in economic forecasting, it's a really substantial you know three, five, eight times effect that it has, which is why that sector has been hit with as much subsidy. And it's not oh we're one-eyed and we just want a strong construction and property sector. It's very, very carefully been put together to ensure that the maximum bang for the government's buck starts to then flow through into the economy and then the peripheral services that go around it. So that's why you know there's been so much work in that space and sure property prices moving up is a big help for that. Um, you know, it's hard to quantify why when our population is not growing and we've got no overseas buyers, but people are certainly using this as an opportunity with those low interest rates to, to, to acquire more asset. And if somebody's got a yield of you know, 3% and your borrowing cost is 1% at the moment, okay, the, or 2%, shall we say, which are artificially low levels, you've, you've still got something that's potentially cash flow positive, even at that Absolutely. very thin level. The challenge you're going to have is when interest rates go up, and I'm sure we'll talk about what happens when the music stops as we move through. <laughs> so, you know, in, in that regard, but, you know, it's easy just to focus on property, but the recovery that we've seen in the Australian economy hasn't just been driven by property. You know, if we look more broadly at that, let's take the resources sector, for example. Um, you know, and okay, we've got our trade dispute that's ongoing with China. The one standing, uh, one shining light in that area is, of course, iron ore. And again, there's another perfect storm for the Aussie economy. It's our biggest export by a, a, a substantial margin, but it's also a, a world market where we have at the moment open field running because we effectively have no competition in the global iron ore markets. Um, you know, Brazil would be a normal running mate and a normal competitor there, but with COVID and I think they had a dam breach there, you know, the iron ore sector has effectively all but shut down in Brazil meaning there's really one place on a global scale to it's buy us. high quality iron ore, which is is us, and it's why we've seen iron ore prices at 220 bucks a tonne. I mean, it's just crackers. And companies like Fortescue Metals, BHP, for example, rally to, to exuberant new heights. It's pretty crazy. It, it, it is, and again, you make hay while the sun shines. And look, for anyone that was an investor during the GFC and they saw the market correct, and then we had the recovery, that was led by the resources boom. This time we had the COVID correction, and this was helped out by the government's pretty quick response. If markets turn down again, and this is a word of caution to anyone as a shareholder, you've already had your get out of jail card, which was that government, there's no government stimulus too, because no money left. It's all been spent on this and it's done its job. Okay, so we'll get into risk management when we talk about equities. But So commodity prices, 
done very, very well. There's also consumer spending as well. So uh, construction and building and property resources and consumer spending have all been standouts, which are three hugely important ones. So under government subsidy, uh, maybe some people on JobKeeper are earning more than what they were previously when they were working. They've spent it pretty well. Um, you know, they've been down to Harvey Norman and JB Hi-Fi and Temple and Webster and all these different places spending their hard-earned or not hard-earned money, um, you know, on, uh, you know, unprecedented levels, uh, which, which, you know, has, has, has fueled again another sector within our economy. It doesn't really make sense though, right? And, and I know we covered this off last year in our, one of our mm. podcasts, Irrational Economics, by the way, plug, go and have a look at that if you haven't already. Mm is that look the, the people who are getting JobKeeper are, are low-income earners, right? They're only getting 800 bucks a week, thereabouts, for the most part. Mm. So why are they spending more? Wouldn't we be spending okay. less if we're earning less? So again, if you look at the economic theory, the lower someone's income, the higher their consumer rate, the, the higher percentage of their income that they spend. Uh, if you were to give an, a, 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 a subsidy of sorts to someone that's a high-income earner, uh, they'd probably use it to pay down debt. Right, so it's a difference in behaviour. Yeah, uh, and this is why maybe there's a high level of financial literacy as well, uh, whereas someone that's a lower income earner is likely to continue to spend that as they do with their other stuff. Um, The other issue that, of course, is easy to overlook with the inability to travel. Yeah, there's something in the order of, you know, depending on which economist you're listening to, somewhere between 60 and 80 billion dollars, maybe more, that was being spent overseas on overseas travel is now being spent inwardly within our economy. And so, 60 to 80 billion is being spent. It was being spent on a holiday, now it's being spent on a reno or upgrading the car. I mean, look at the car market right now. I know you've just traded rather nice Benz out in the car park. Very good, I good trade, mate, well done. And well-deserved, I might add, too. Thank you. Um, the, you look at the car market, to get a second-hand car um, is now more appealing because the wait list for a brand new car is, is almost impossible. Ridiculous. Yeah, there's, I had a 13-month wait for my car. It's just insane when you look at it in that respect. So the market for second-hand cars is there too. So what would ordinarily be a depreciating asset for people where, oh, yeah, let's just go down, they're actually holding their value and in some cases are worth more. So there's another thing that's just ticked over. But this notion of not having uh, people traveling, terrible as it is, I love travel as much as the next person, has kept that money inwardly within our economy and become a quasi-stimulant. And if you were cynical, you'd say our government's probably going to try and keep us uh, within our country, spending domestically rather than letting it go off sea, over, overseas because we've started to see just how much money was running out the door and what can happen when it's kept internally. So I guess the question rises then, Abby, how far can this go? How, how much further can we take this? Well, if, if we look at the US, the US is in a slightly different position to us in that you know, the Federal Reserve there has pumped trillions of dollars into the marketplace. And inflation is starting to gain a toehold on the back of that, which you would expect. The central bank's job is to keep economic growth on track, keep unemployment at a reasonable level, and keep inflation within its boundaries. You're starting to see inflation rise over there. The difference, I think, in the US is that yeah, there are still 8 million people that were in the workforce in the US pre-COVID have yet to rejoin the workforce. So you're not seeing the wage growth yet because there's still the ability to soak people that are currently not working as a consequence of COVID back into the workforce. Now here in Australia, our unemployment rate is actually very low. We're at 5.5%. People have talked about it, all the targets, 4%. It's been probably 17 or 18 years since we've had unemployment levels at this low level that they currently are. Why are we shooting for such a low level, right? So we've got... To all intents and purposes, what's called more or less full unemployment. 
So anyone that wants a job has one. Anyone that doesn't have a job right now probably doesn't want a job. <laughs> and, and if you were going to put a hardcore hat on, you'd probably be targeting ways of getting those guys engaged in the workforce because we need them. We don't have migrant workers coming in to pick up the shortfall. Um, but also, um, yeah, we're starting to see wage pressure and hiring kinks in the hose happening. So in a business in Australia now, and you know, virtually everybody I speak to across you know, a broad range of businesses simply cannot get staff. And it almost doesn't matter what you're offering money-wise, you cannot get staff. There simply aren't the, the, the pool of resource seems not to be there. So our economy on that metric is also very, very strong, where you're starting to get that, that wage growth coming through. Now wage growth when it comes through, not much fun if you're an employer because you're paying your people more and also you've got that uh, rise in uh, compulsory superannuation contributions to look forward to as well. But at a grassroots level, it's actually a very, very strong indicator because when you've got wage growth, that economy is now running on its own flames. And that wage growth creates more money for people to spend, which keeps inflationary pressure moving at a level that's healthy, and it keeps things chugging along. So I suspect in the US, you're going to start to see a bit of a peel back in the Fed putting as much money into markets and bonds particularly as they are. And I think you're going to gradually see a wind back on a federal basis here too. We've just had an extraordinarily generous budget. If you were cynical, and neither of us are really cynics, uh, but if we Speak were, for yourself. even if we were, hypothetically, you'd argue that it's, a, <laughs> it's an election year budget. It's a re-election budget. Uh, yeah, and there was a lot of money that was spent there. Um, but the, you know, the economy is really starting to show green shoots on its own merit with that wage growth in particular. And, and the other thing to note with property, you know, with property prices going up, I mean, I'm down in Byron, markets up 40% over the last 12 it's months. It's crazy. crazy. When your home goes up in value, the wealth effect, we talked about the multiplier effect a little bit earlier. Um, when you talk about the wealth effect, if your home that you own is going up in value, you feel more wealthy in yourself, which you should because your assets gone in value. And so people oftentimes, because they feel more affluent, will spend more. They may go to the mortgage and do a redraw against it and take some of the equity out of the house, and I'd always advise against that. Um, get it paid off. That's a bit of an old school investment advice, but just get it paid off, because as long as you've got debt, you don't own your life. Um, get it paid off, but you know, if you do use that and pull some cash out, with interest rates so low, it's very tempting to say, look, my house has gone up 400 grand. Let me take 100,000 out to get a new car. Um, so, you know, my house has moved up, I'm taking a hundred grand of that on paper, unrealized profit out, and I'm going to use that to get a car and look, it's going to cost me 2% a year to finance it on my mortgage anyway, so it's virtually free money. Well, sure. And people are certainly doing that too, which then puts more fuel in the tank for the economy to turn around. So as long as that property market's moving up, it doesn't have to be going up at the stratospheric rate that it is right now, but as long as it continues to grow at a healthy rate, that wealth effect is going to lead into further consumer spending. So again, on an organic level, you've got wage growth, you've got largely full employment, you've got a wealth effect that's been created by the property market, and all of those things go to point towards more consumer spending, which is one of the staples in any kind of economic growth. And that's why I'm of the view that, you know, we're in a natural boom right now, and the government can probably afford to turn down the high octane juice that's being poured in there even more, and just keep the keep the thing turning over of its own accord, which I think you'll probably see post the election at the end of the year. Yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting view and there's a lot to consider there, AB, many pieces to the puzzle, yeah. which is why we love getting your expertise. Mm. If we had to talk now a little bit something uh, about something more specialised, and that would be equity markets. Mm. We've seen the stock yeah. market rally. It has been off to the races, just like the property market, maybe mm. not as strong, mm. but it's certainly put on some legs. It's been great, hasn't it? It has been great. <laughs> our, clients are, and our clients are loving it, so yeah. they should. I guess the question is, 
what's going on, mm. why has it happened, and mm. where do we see this going? Look, money's got to go somewhere, uh, and uh, holding it in cash is just not an alternate at the moment at the low levels of interest rates, which is, again, part of policy to stimulate the economy that's dropped rates. And so you're seeing that money flow into equities and properties alike. The challenge of property, of course, is it's now got to a point where it's chronically overvalued on, on a lot of metrics, and also that requirement to have you know, a reasonable amount of deposit because the value of the property's gone up, the deposit you need's gone up, and if you're trying to save your way there, given interest rates are so low, it's just not working. So anyone that can get into the property market is diverting what funds they have into stocks, no question about it. Makes sense. Um, you know, and, and given the pace and the, the, the timbre of conversation around equities, you know, since the low in March of last year to now, people are going, oh, gee, the stock market actually isn't that boring, look what I can do. <laughs> uh, and you're seeing new entrants in there, which we've seen en masse as well. So, you know, there's two combinations. Can't get into the property market, need to invest somewhere. And then there are people that just go, heck, it's, it's, it's actually producing great returns, which actually does most of the time anyway. Um, and, and those two things have uh, pushed us up to the record levels we're at. Now, here's an interesting one. I did an interview on the radio the other day, and uh, the questions they were asking me was orientated about, you know, what would you say to people given the equity markets for all-time highs? And, and we can't be nervous about the equity market being at an all-time high, equity market being the stock market, because it's been doing that since 1870. Uh, if we go back to March, it was an all-time high, had a pullback, everyone's gone off. This is the crash that the American speaker was talking about coming, and boom, then she's gone up to a new record high. Then in May, we had the CPI figures out in the US. We had a bit of a drop, a 6% drop. And then boom, straight and boom, back up. Now we're back up to record high because there is an enormous broad range of reasons for this, as we've talked about, from the government to the wealth effect from property uh, to money not going overseas to people being fully employed and earning more. And, and companies doing very, very well in that environment where people want to invest in them. You know, let's take, say, for example, the Commonwealth Bank. Yeah, and, and, and in all fairness, Matt Cohen has done an amazing job. You know, from post-Royal Commission to where it is now as an organisation, it's, 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 it's stretched away from the other banks and the big four by some margin. And you know, the share price is what, $101, $102 as we speak today. Um, for someone that's been an investor in there, you remember it was like sub 50 bucks pretty much during the, the COVID correction. Yeah. So you've seen this move up in value. What do you do? Let's put some practical advice on this right now. Uh, and the answer is very simple. You've got a choice depending on your attitude to risk. If you think it's all over, exit, click your button ball and go home. So Take your profit, happy days, right? Made great money, wouldn't be my preferred option. Uh, the alternate would be to maybe hedge some of the downside risk and to do that you might buy a bearish ETF. So B-E-A-R or B-B-O-Z being two examples in Australia, S-H in the US. Uh, and what that will do is if the stock market caves in, the value of that ETF you've purchased will go up. Now, the shares you own are going to fall, but that ETF is going to go up. And if that ETF goes up and your shares fall, it's protecting you from the downside, effectively giving you a delta neutral or, or zeroed out risk. Okay. The third way would be to have stop losses, which are stock standard in the investment space. So if the share price drops by a certain amount, you might choose to exit. The problem with that is if the share price then suddenly recovers, you feel a bit of a goose for getting out and then she's gone up further. Yeah, and, and, and you can always buy back in. And I know people listening to this will go, yeah, but then there are the transaction fees. As you well know, I mean, you run a broking business here. The, the, the reality is transaction fees are so low now. If they're actually a consideration and a decision, get a cheaper broker because you should not be paying significant transaction fees. They're paper thin. Yeah. So, you know, you can always get back in and buy back into that rally if things change. My preferred option, Buying some insurance. As you know, I love derivatives and, and I use put options to do that. And I think I did a price up on Friday for a trade. Um, so if you wanted to protect Commonwealth Bank, you've been in the shares, it's $102 today. $102 today. Let's say you've got, okay, let's insure these for $98. 
So I've got a little bit of skin in the game. I've got a bit of excess to pay if it pulls away, but let's say it caves back in, the market falls over, and the share price drops to 50 bucks. How can I lock in most of my gain? Quite easy, we're gonna buy a $98 insurance policy, it goes out to December, it's gonna cost you four bucks. So it's about 4% for over six months of peace of mind knowing that your downside is 100% guaranteed and fixed before you start. And if you really think about using the dividend flow from Commonwealth, which is you know, at the higher end of the banking sector at the moment, or using some call options over it, you can effectively pay for that insurance, making it free. You've got the ability to sleep at night. You're still holding onto your shares. You've got further upside if those shares move up. Your downside is contained and it's guaranteed and somebody else can pay for that insurance policy for you. And when people listen to this sort of stuff, uh, and if you're not, across the space of the market we operate in. That might sound a little bit complex. It's actually very simple once you understand how it works, but you've got to get educated. And irrespective of how strong this economy is, it doesn't change the core message. The best investment you'll ever make isn't chasing the property market, isn't chasing the stock market. It's in yourself to learn how to be able to exploit these opportunities confidently so that you don't find yourself one of those people that's sitting on the sideline with FOMO going, I should be in the market, but I can't quite get there because I don't think it's going to keep going up. And three years later, when it's even higher, you're going, I should get in the market, <laughs> but I'm worried it's not going to keep going up. And 10 years time, when you're still renting and you're complaining that you can't get in the property market because the whole thing is shot past where you can go, it's because you didn't have the courage to step in. And courage or confidence only comes from being educated and being schooled on what to do at the right time. It's as simple as that. And when it looks risky, it probably is. But when you look through the lenses of someone that's been trained, like we've just explained with the banking sector right now and that ability to zero out your downside, you only get that when you get yourself trained. So talking to someone say, would you buy Commonwealth Bank at 100 bucks? Maybe if you could protect yourself and do all that, why not? I'd rather have bought it for 50 and have it here now. But if you're holding it, don't think, oh, if it falls, it'll recover again because you had your get out, of, get out of jail card several months ago when the government came in and bailed you out the first time. So, you know, it's, it's a very, very interesting time. Booms, a lot of money's made in booms. And a lot of money is missed in booms because people just don't want to believe it. Oh, I'm not going to drink the Kool-Aid. It can't go anymore. I wouldn't have thought this property market could do what it did. I was on the record probably this time last year going, the end is nigh. It isn't. And I was wrong. And this thing is just trawled away. It hasn't stopped me being in the property market. I picked up new property and doing very nicely as a consequence from it. And will continue to do so in just the same way with the stock market too. So that FOMO, that sitting on the fringe. And they're also the most vocal people. They're always the ones on social media, oh, this is gonna happen, that's gonna happen, the armchair experts, the keyboard warriors. It's easy to do it when you're sitting and you've got no skin in the game. Be in or out, but don't be thinking about it. That's great advice, AB, and I think we can clearly answer the question we started off with the broadcast. Has Australia's economy gone from a recession to a boom? Absolutely. Is it narrow? Probably not. It's spanned across a multitude of industries and, and, and subparts. Broad-based. Broad-based. Broad it's across a range of sectors. That's right. And look, people are like, what about China? What happens if they stop buying iron ore? Well, they tried that last week. Didn't work too well. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you know, what about China? And it is a real threat. You know, and you've got to be not blinkered that this is bottom left, top right territory. issues a boom, it goes forever. You've got to be aware of where the risks sit. Hence why buying protection on your positions is not a bad idea. But at the end of the day, there's always going to be a risk in some of There's always a what if this happens, but you can't let those what ifs stop you actually capitalizing on what's going on. And you know, many, many years ago, probably I've been in this game now nearly 30 years, probably 28 and a half years ago, I came to the realization that making serious money in markets is not about trying to predict the future. It's about to responding to what's happening right now. And you can see what's happening right now and it's time to respond to it. If you try and predict the future, you're going to be absolutely right or you're going to be absolutely wrong. There's no gray area with that. If you're in, 
you've got a fighting chance of turning what you're in into a great profit. And I'd always rather be in the market than talking about being in the market, that's for sure. So, you know, there's, there's so many different ways of, of, of really looking at this, you know. Don't try and predict what's gonna happen next. Respond to what's going on and get stuck in. Otherwise, you'll be like my expert American friend who's still waiting for the Dow to crack 6,000. Plus, who likes FOMO, right? Terrible disease to have. AB, thank you very much for your insight here. There's plenty covered off. I know certainly a lot of value in that, so uh, I really appreciate that. Cheers. Always a pleasure, Mitch, anytime. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating so we can continue to spread the word, and we'll look forward to hosting you in next week's show.